probably going to trip on this. All right, good morning. If you'd open your Bibles to, uh, well, gosh, a couple places. Let's start in Mark chapter 12. We're actually going through Exodus, and we're supposed to be in Exodus 21, and we will go kind of through there. Um, You'll see that we're going to start kind of going through larger chunks of Exodus because we begin to see um, some repetition where God instructs them how to do things, and then they go and do it, and so we're going to kind of take them in chunks of what God has actually instructed them to do rather than every single uh, chapter individually. Um, the Jewish people, as a, as we've kind of seen uh, throughout, oh something fell throughout the uh, Old Testament, uh, are called the people of the book. That's kind of culturally what uh, we know them as, and they're called that because the Jewish faith consists of a series of books. Actually, uh, starts with the Old Testament or the Bible, of which um, is sometimes read still. Uh, I've got a bunch of Jewish family and, and a couple um, rabbis in my family, and it's interesting talking to them about Scripture. They often want to talk about some of the other books that they have, which include things that are called the Mishnah, uh, the Talmud, uh, some of the other rabbinical writings, the Midrash, the Law Codes, the Commentaries, uh, just Jewish literature itself, legal texts, uh, poetry books, prayer books, even ethical wills, old ethical wills that parents had written before they would die to instruct their surviving children how to live or what they should do. And so when you talk about the Jewish people, they are without question a people of the book and all of their Jewish writings express this is how we're supposed to live. And the foundation of really all of those writings began with what we've been going over over the last couple of weeks, which is the Ten Commandments. And we discussed Two weeks ago, the first four commandments, which speak about how they would see loving God, in terms of what does it mean to actually love God and become this worshiper in relationship to God. The last six that we talked about last week, which was a nice long sermon, was about the idea of man's relationship to man. What does it mean to worship God as I love other people? And what's that look like? And the the Ten Commandments, um, as we read, were kind of general, kind of like a constitution is, where we take our constitution and from there we come up with kind of all these laws that we use in specific scenarios. And so as we get into Exodus, if you read 21 through 24, you start to see the Ten Commandments kind of fleshed out in very specific scenarios. Uh, Things of, you know, when when you actually say, thou shall not kill or you should not kill somebody, uh, what does it mean if you kill somebody by accident? Uh, Because you've got to deal with that. Those are a little bit different than if you obviously have intention and motivation to kill. We see that in our own laws. Um, The idea of theft. Well, what if you just break in and steal something and the owner gets up in the middle of the night and sees the thief and kills him? Is he guilty for protecting his stuff? Or what if you borrow something from someone and someone steals the thing they borrow? So it gets into very specific scenarios to kind of flesh out what it actually means to fulfill these in a practical way. So you have Exodus 21 through 24 and some others uh, throughout the book of Exodus. And then you have the entire book of Leviticus. And you have the Deuteronomy. And each of those lay out a ton of very specific laws about such things as acceptable forms of worship, tithing, justice, witnesses, unsolved murders, inheritance, uh, diet, 
uh, proper Sabbath celebration, so all kinds of things, and they get very specific. So a couple examples, in Exodus 21, where we have are going or should be, it has uh, kind of some general but specific laws, and this is probably familiar to you, in 21 verse 23, it says this, but if there is harm, talking about men fighting together, and what happens when they strive together or, or fight, it says, uh, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, or stripe for stripe. And so that's a law that, practically speaking, shows that you just can't kill anybody when they do something mean to you. And it's not necessarily an eye for an eye, like, okay, you hurt my hand, then I'm going to hurt your hand, or you rape me, so now you get raped. It ends up falling apart pretty quickly. So you basically, it protects, in a lot of ways, victims, it's kind of weird, um, and also the people who do the victiming, so that we don't go crazy with killing somebody for a harsh crime. So it's intended, actually, to be making sure justice stays justice and doesn't get crazy by just, you know, being uh, completely destructive. So you have, like, very civic laws. It's just law-abiding civic laws. You also have ceremonial laws. If you go in Leviticus 8, you have ceremonial laws that say, do this as a priest as you go into the uh, Holy of Holies, clean yourself up, and has all these rules that they have to follow in order to fulfill the ceremony of offering sin offerings for the people. Very specific laws. That they, so those are some of the laws. You also have the moral laws, like in Deuteronomy 22, that talks about rape being wrong and murder and you know, intentional homicide being wrong, those types of things. Then you have really strange, crazy laws that you know, don't boil a donkey in its mother's milk or go to its mother's milk. And you're like, what is that all about? Or if a man's donkey's walking and it falls in a ditch, you know, how do you help that donkey and how do you restore? And very specific things. And then some just freaky stuff that I think is hilarious, but you look at it, Deuteronomy 25, for example, and this is just one of several. Deuteronomy 25, in verse 11 and 12, it says this, which is like, holy smokes. When men fight with one another and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, you shall cut off her hand and your eyes shall have no pity. That's one of the laws. You're like, first of all, just the fact that God had to you know, make that law shows that this was happening somewhat regularly. You know, you think about it. But you go through the Old Testament and you have 70% of these five books are made up of laws that are some civic, some ceremonial, and some just weird. You know, and 70% of the first five books, which amounts to 613 commandments that are given as would be characterizing the law that is Israel's Mosaic law. 365 of those are negative of what not to do, and 248 are positive or what to do. And so, praise God that we don't have to, you know, find righteousness or that we are saved not by our obedience, but by Christ's obedience perfectly to the law because we fail and if you don't think so i can give you one of the 613 that will probably show you where you have broken the law and the fact is that the pharisees and scribes and several other religious people dedicated themselves to knowing these 613 laws plus all the other books they created so these guys studied and studied and studied and particularly the scribes would were the guys that would really teach most of it and they would uh, copy it all the time, and they served as jurists a lot of the time, and these were the guys who were the bookworms 
of Jewish culture. And so they did this flat out because understanding what it meant to be Jewish and understanding what it meant to love God was found in these 613 commandments. And so it was important for them to know. So in Mark 12, you have Jesus arguing with these guys called the Sadducees. And the scribes and the Pharisees are kind of watching this go on. And the Sadducees are guys that didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they come to Jesus and they go, hey, Jesus, so when, uh, they're trying to get him in a kind of a trick. <clears throat> they said, so when everyone dies and this guy is married like five women as they've all died and he's had different marriages, who is he going to be married to in heaven? And they're trying to poke at the fact that they don't believe in the resurrection and prove why it's illogical and all this stuff. And Jesus pretty much is like, you guys don't know your Bibles, you need to read them more. And you're flat out wrong. It's one of the few times where he goes, you're wrong. And as the scribes and the Pharisees are listening, they kind of perk up their own questions. It's interesting, the Sadducees would, the Pharisees and the scribes, if they're like the Bible-thumping fundamentalists, the Sadducees would be like the Bible-chucking liberals that don't want anything to do with the Bible, and these guys only want everything to do with the Bible. And so they kind of represent two poor sides. So the Pharisees and the scribes ask him a question, one of the scribes, I should say, in Mark 12, and we've read it in a couple of different Gospels, but I think this is, uh, this is germane for us today. So it says in verse 28 of chapter 12, speaking about all of these laws, he says, And one of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with one another, and seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is most important? Now he's talking about the 613. What one is most important? And Jesus answered, The most important is, and we've heard this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and there is no other commandment greater than these. doesn't mean there's no other commandments. This is no other commandment greater. And the scribe said to him, well, you are right, teacher, because these guys are bookworms, smarties, they know their Bible. You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there's no one other besides him. And to, live, to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. But those burnt offerings and sacrifices and ceremonial things are still there. But he says this is certainly greater than those. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. You're not far from the kingdom, man. Who knows if he ever actually became a believer. But he wasn't far in that moment. And Jesus' response to, to his question, it's the same response. It could be the same guy. Most likely it is this lawyer that we read in, in Luke. We see that all of these laws are intended to do much more than just be something to follow systematically they reveal something about god's holiness and how we can be or will fall short of being holy like him and as you as you read the law and see that god cares about minutia like donkeys falling in ditches and weird fights that happen between husbands and wives and the wives of other husbands and things of that nature or that when we steal someone it matters if it's borrowed whatever all this little detail for me, shows that God is interested in every single aspect of our life, not just the big spiritual religious checklist that we like to make up. He wants every detail, which is very hard for us to commit to. And in essence, God's crimes, all these crimes and punishments he lays out, which are very specific, show us 
how best to love him, to love our brother, and those are the people in our community, people in our church, people in Israel, and also to love the people who I will characterize as our neighbors. Now, unfortunate thing is, I think, the, is that we want to do just a couple of those at a time. We usually leave one of those out. We usually fail to love either God, we fail to love our brother, or we fail to love our neighbor. And if we fail to love any one of those, we in some way fail to worship and love God as he's called us to do. And not talking about necessarily following every commandment. In Exodus 19.5, here's what God called Israel. And Peter says the same thing about the church later. But in 19.5 he says this, Now therefore, God speaking, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So they're God's people because they live differently. They're chosen. And they are, without question, a holy nation because they live together. There's a particular grouping. There's some organization to it. And they are a kingdom of priests, which means that they are to do something as priests. Priests have a function. Priests mediate the relationship between God and man, and that is the function of Israel, even in the midst of this unholy world that they live in, and it is the function of the church and the individual believer. And so I want to talk about what happens when we fail to love one of those aspects. And the first one is when we fail to love our neighbors. We're really good at loving, let's say we as in believers most often, are very good at loving God and sometimes loving brothers only, and they fail to love neighbors. Let me characterize what that looks like. The sin of the Pharisees was not that they loved God's God's law too much. That's great. There's nothing wrong with focusing and learning and studying all these little laws and understanding what it teaches us about God and who He is and how we can worship Him. The problem was they separated from the world completely in doing that. They called people to love God without any sense of relationship with the world. They somewhat forgot what their role was to the extent that they become very prideful as they looked out into the world using terms like lost, broken, sinful, not describing themselves in any way, but being very prideful looking out and going, I'm so glad I'm not messed up like that. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus teaches a really hard parable where he describes Pharisees looking at all these sinful people, and the Pharisee starts to pray and thanks God that he's not as bad as those sinners, looking down pridefully on the brokenness that he sees. And so the scribes and the Pharisees would hang out, reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, singing their Bibles, and they ignored the world outside of themselves. Though God made them what he calls a priesthood of believers, they focused on the fact that they were a holy nation removed from the rest of the world and focused on their holiness. Now, churches and and Christians, I think, make this mistake by getting so much into their church, into their own community, into their own traditions and their buildings and even their laws and the laws that God has that they fail to get actually excited about Jesus himself and just the stuff And as such, I think any relationship that they encounter, which is pretty rare because 
their perspective, this is people who don't love their neighbors, they look at sin as something you can catch like the swine flu, and because they don't want to get dirty, they stay away from as many people as they can who might have the sin disease. They don't want to get dirty and touch them or, or dwell with them. And they believe that the best way to love your neighbor, and your brother for that matter, is to tell them how screwed up they are, how sinful they are, where they're going wrong, and to focus all of their energy on that. And sometimes you see that expressed with people holding all kinds of signs that I'm not sure are very effective, telling people how sinful they are and how much God hates them. I'm pretty convinced those aren't effective. And though they might actually be in some of the things, not the sign people, but the people who are so focused on the purity part, they might actually be accurate in what they're saying and actually truthful in what they're saying. They fail to establish any kind of relationship to the extent where that will actually be listened to. And they just kind of go, you're evil, and walk away. You're sinful. Look at God's law, and that's it. And they preach God's rules and a few rules they probably make up themselves. And good behavior and obedience is something that becomes the goal before the person really even has the ability to obey or believe anything. Now, God's word becomes, I think, little more than a... They like to talk about God's word being a sword. But what it becomes is this, this kind of proof text thing. Let me show you why you're so wrong and why you're so broken and so sinful. And in, within the church, those are the people that often become the sin hunters looking around and they either end up living a really fake life because they don't want anyone to think they actually may have had a dirty thought or even worse, maybe didn't pray as much as they should have or read their Bible as much as they should have. And into the world, if they ever go out there, typically they wait for the great evangelistic event that their church does. Other than that, they don't spend too much time out there. But if they ever do go out there, They just tell people how broken they are. Most of the time, they sit in their little private community, in their little Christian bomb shelter, away from the world that's trying to kill them. So that individual loves God. I believe they love God. I believe they, that they want to know God more. They love their brother. They love their church folk, their people in their community, but they fail to actually love their neighbor. And then there's the people that, love God and their neighbors, and they forget about their brothers, which describes maybe some of us as well. And what happens is, this is an individual who loves Jesus so much, they want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, right? They probably sing that song. It'll be your hands, you know, you go out there, right? I just want to, I just want to love on people. I want, to, I want to bless people. I want to touch people. I want to give to people. And they, they get you know, very much into social justice, which isn't wrong. It's just that that's what drives them. And quite frankly, there are people that are just very good at that. There are some people who just stink at having relationships with people who aren't in their community. And there are people that are just excellent at it. Organizations that are excellent at reaching people who, quite frankly, hate church. And they're intentional about going out into culture and just loving them as they speak about God occasionally. They want to love people like Jesus did by dwelling with them in relationship. And so they seek out whatever the culture's sick and sore happen to be. And they even might start a ministry to reach one of these cultures. 
that the church culture hasn't been able to really get into. And it's a blessed thing. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And because so many people innately have a desire to be part of something like that, a lot of people gravitate towards that in the community. A lot of people that would never maybe give church a chance or the church community. And they can talk about spiritual things without having these perceived legalisms or rules that go with being, you know, the church. Love God and they love neighbors. But the problem is that when you only focus on relationship, which Jesus says is important, we've got to love our neighbors. When you only focus on relationship, you fail to see the importance of any kind of community that is God-centered or gospel-centered. They'd rather spend their time in relationship, doing relationship, having relationship, relating, than actually doing anything else. And sometimes those relationships end up in sharing the gospel, but other times, this is my fear, the person's ministry begins to transform them versus them actually transforming the ministry. And what happens sometimes is that they're no, on, no longer on mission for Jesus and the relationship that he's supposed to be bringing. They're, they're supposed to be like kind of the mailman. Let me introduce you. This is, you know, Tom. He is sinful, broken, and dirty. This is Jesus. And bring them together. That's kind of the point. It becomes a self-serving thing where you just have your own relationship, and that's where you find your satisfaction. Now, the thing that I think is a danger, if you will, is that they fail to actually lead them or find value in joining the body of Christ and leading them into the body of Christ. And they ignore what amounts to a lot of passages, in fact, most of the New Testament, that tells us that God's people are unified and brought into something. They're brought into a family. And that family is on mission together. And that family has purpose together. And they talk about these groups that love God and love their neighbors. They talk about being... The church body universal, like, well, the church exists wherever. I agree. And they never push people into or invite them to a community that could care for them and maybe, in fact, actually challenge them to grow. Now, I think these, these people love Jesus. They talk about Jesus. They celebrate Jesus oftentimes. Sometimes they even worship Jesus, but they get very close to despising the body of Jesus, which doesn't make sense to me. Now, they love the Word and they proclaim the Word, but they never invite anyone into those gospel-centered things where they will actually maybe be transformed by something powerful. There's value here. We'll talk about that in a second. But they love, I believe, God. They love their neighbors, but they fail to love their brothers. They fail to love His body. And then the last one is people who love their brothers and neighbors and they fail to love God. And they kind of God kind of goes out the, out the door. And what this looks like is that these people fall in love with the culture and the world so much, whatever aspect it might be for them. And these individuals and sometimes groups and even churches are so intentional about loving the culture that they bring all that culture into their community and the culture begins to transform who they are and even dictate who God is. Now, at some level, I believe that churches have to stop stylistically doing church like it's still 1972. I understand that. 
but we should always be, quote, doing the gospel of, as if it's A.D. 33, that doesn't change. But my fear is that that goes out the window. Because you love your neighbors so much and you love your brothers so much. So, in fact, you, you build a little bit of a community together. And you start converting people to that community. But all the good works and even the definition of that community is defined outside of Christ and outside of Scripture. And so it can be anything. And so ultimately what happens is, I think the, the come-as-you-are community that's so inviting because people want community, they want some sense of spirituality, but the come-as-you-are community becomes stay-as-you-are community. And you're never challenged to change anything because we change with what we feel and what experiences we have. And who defines the church? Who defines this? It's like, well, God does, but since he isn't primary, it gets lost. I think what happens is it becomes a false gospel of accommodation out of fear that the the true gospel and God's word is too confrontive. And we don't call people to repentance because that's mean. We just want love. And God never comes in the conversation. They love their neighbors and they love the brothers, the community they built, but God kind of gets put on the outside. So what God is calling us to do, I believe, is to simultaneously love him, love our brothers, and love our neighbors. And if you fail to do any one of those, you will fail and somehow to worship God. You will fail to actually love people the way that God says you should be loving them. Now, the problem is, when you, you miss one, we either call people to repentance without relationship, which, good luck, it doesn't really work very often. You call people to relationship without any sense of repentance, which again, it's nice and feels good, but it ultimately is not loving. Or you kind of redefine relationship and repentance altogether, and you just kind of make it whatever you want it to be. We're supposed to love our God according to how God says, our brothers according to how God says, and our neighbors according to how God says. So when we love God, biblically, we understand and recognize the right use of the law. It is a good thing. It is a one, all these little laws represent a holiness of God and a perfection that we cannot attain. And using the law wisely or correctly says that the law exists flat out to show us our sin. Because sin is breaking the law. Now, we must recognize that the law is good, but... It can't save us, and it can't save anyone, because everyone but Jesus is sinful. So Jesus alone perfectly fulfilled the law, and when he died, perfect, sinless Jesus was punished for our failure to meet the law. And his perfection was given to us. He died as our substitute, not as a good example And so we put our faith in the fact that he was perfectly obedient and we will never be, and that is what brings salvation. His death gave us forgiveness. His his life gives us righteousness. That's the gospel. That's a love for God. And we have to understand that, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, that's the most important thing, is the gospel. Romans 1.16 is a fantastic verse, and it says this, 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The problem with understanding or with gravitating towards relationship only, or some kind of weird community only, is that you begin to forget that the power isn't in the relationship or the community. The power is in the gospel, the truth of Jesus. And nine chapters later, in Romans, Paul also says that the gospel and salvation comes by people hearing the word of God. And yet we have these relationships and we love and we, we give to people and we do social justice and we engage their cultures. And if we never tell them the gospel, if we never tell them that Jesus died for you, that you might live with him, if you never get to that point, that is in fact not loving. That has to be primary. We have to recognize and understand the power is in the gospel. Relationships make it possible to communicate the gospel. But that is the point, is to tell them the one truth they need to know in this world. So we do that, and then we see people believe the gospel. This foolish story that we're so afraid to tell some people. And if we actually believe that those words, that Jesus died for you, that He took your place on the cross and took the death you deserved, that He gives you new life right now and forever. If we really believed in the power of those things, we would tell everyone. But we're always worried about, well, I don't have the perfect... They won't listen. They'll be offended. It is foolishness. But it is the wisdom of God. And so we see people believe in miraculous ways. And then we invite them together as people who understand that they are rebellious, they are depraved, that I am a sinner, I am broken, I am not worthy, but we gather together as the church, as brothers of the same salvation story. And we gather together to worship what God has done, not what we have done. That is the church. And we covenant with one another in mutual submission. And we behave like a family. I don't know if you understand, and Kayla and I were talking about this the other day, what a joy it is to just see people come on Sunday. And when you're not here, what an encouragement it is for people to come. We're going to probably go to one service in the summer simply to make it easier for the kids' stuff. I remember we broke into two services. It was like, oh, it's hard for me to see this person. It's hard for me to see that person. It is a joy to see people on Sunday. And the church, though, has more purpose because there is no other time, and maybe you have other places, but there is no other time that the church, the body of Christ, the people who believe the gospel are called together and there are very few places, if any, that you come and you worship together. And you give God praise together and encouragement together. And more, more than just a practical way, in a very spiritual way. You organize your life between that is what we're going to do. And people come into church, there are very few places where you come and you learn openly God's word. Just flat out declare, here's God's word. This is what it means to love God. This is what it means to be loved by God. There are a few places that happens at the church. 
where we begin to experience a community that genuinely loves each other without expecting anything, but I love you because Jesus loved me. Where we get encouragement and equipping to know what we do. That's what the Bible says the church is for. You become a believer. You come in. You get equipped. They teach so you can go out and tell others the gospel. We learn together. We grow together. And it's not just fellowship. There is love. There is friendship. There is joy. There is come over to my house and eat dinner. Why? Just because. But then there's that piece where I say, I love you too much to let you stay where you are. Generally, you don't get that in any other community. We say, I'm calling you to love your wife as Christ loves the church. You're sinning. What kind of friend is going to tell you, generally my experience with non-Christian friends, they just agree with you regardless if you're sinning or not. I can't believe you did that. Right? Right? They won't tell you, you're wrong. You're sinning. You need to repent. You need to confess. That is what the body of Christ, and we come together and we confess, and we find forgiveness, and we find encouragement with our brothers, and then we go out equipped and strengthened, knowing that I'm not charging the hill by myself. I look back and there's actually people there. We get fellowship and we get accountability. Hebrews 10 says it like this. Yes, we study God's laws, but that's for a purpose. And Hebrews 10 says in verse 24, And let us consider, this is what the church does, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we come in not like a Christian bomb shelter to stay away from the big bad world, but we do come in to be open with one another, to confess our sins to one another, get encouragement by one another, challenged by one another, that we might go out and proclaim Christ. We love our brothers. And then lastly, and maybe this is the thing that a lot of us fail at, we're also, at the same time as we love God and love our brothers, we're to love our neighbors. Now, that means we just don't stay in the church. We don't just stay in our gathering. We can't ignore that our neighbors around us who live in all kinds of different cultures that we're all experiencing in our own ways. We go out, and as God has uniquely gifted us or given us particular context to be in, we... Proclaim the truth. Now, a call to being missional is not for a call for the church to be on mission with Jesus, to do a bunch of events and a bunch of things so that we can say, look, I'm giving my money to this church and they're doing evangelism. I can see it right there as they put up their thing over there that we do once a year. Right? And we can say, look, we're doing evangelism. No, it's for the people to live and speak the gospel wherever they are at. So many times I have people wondering, like, well, what is the church doing for this? When is the church going to do this? Why isn't the church blessing this? Okay, well, you're the church. 
But we get stuck in that mode where we're just loving God and our brothers, and we're like, well, the church will take care of the neighbors. But what are you doing? There are plenty of neighbors for you to take care of right now. And it has nothing to do with a church event. It has nothing to do with a church philosophy. It has nothing to do with a particular road group. It has to do with you as an individual loving your neighbors, whoever those might be. Now, what we have to do in some ways, I think, is delineate the role of the church and the role of the individual. John 17, we'll close with this, I think is very key verse in, in my life. And it says this, as Jesus is praying for his disciples as he's about to be arrested and, and killed. It says this in John 17, verse 17. God bless that voice. I love it. Sanctify them in truth as he's praying for them. Your word is truth. So we take the word with us. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. Well, he came and he lived and he dwelled with the people. For 30 years, he looked like a normal Joe. As he sent me, I've sent them. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Not so we can have fantastic relationships or build communities apart from the world. Our goal and mission is that the world will know the wonder and beauty and awesomeness that is Jesus Christ on the cross. And Second Peter, 1 Peter 2.9, repeats the same thing that Moses did in Exodus about the church. and says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies, that you may proclaim, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. My prayer is that all of us will begin to say, I was going to put a little white collar on all of us. A little paper collar. I'd strap it on. You are a priest. You have been given the responsibility to be a pastor somewhere. It begins in your home, but then you have a neighborhood, you have a job, you have places you recreate. At what point are you going to accept the call that says you might be the one person that's to mediate that relationship between your neighbor and God as that priest. And you begin to look at your entire life differently when you accept that. You look at your home differently and what it's used for. You look at your resources differently and how you're using them. You look at your time differently. You look at the barista that you have coffee from every single day differently the people your job differently, and it doesn't mean you're going out going, okay, i got to tell Jesus, Jesus, Jesus died for you, but how about just praying for them? Take a little card and list out the people that you cross every single day. We're always looking for the, I need the opportunity to share the word. You've got an opportunity to pray for them right now. What does it mean to really love your neighbors? Let's be honest, we suck at that. We can love God and memorize Scripture and know all the laws and be like, I know what a Christian is. I know the gospel. And we can love our brothers and come into community and go, I love you, I love you. And then we go out in the world and we live like no one else. We live like everyone else. 
We don't take the gospel out with us, but we wait for the church to do it. You are the church. You have a responsibility to love the neighbors that are there. And you have a responsibility to love them in the way God says love them, not just be buddy-buddy with them. There's been this new spiritual discipline that's been developed that people become self-righteous. And I always think it's interesting. It's like, let me name all the non-Christian friends I have. Right? How many non-Christian friends you have? It becomes this thing like, how many non-Christians are you hanging out with? It's like, well, okay. Why are they all still non-Christian? Have you ever told them the gospel? Man, they love you. You got a relationship. You got a relationship for ten years. You want to tell them the truth at some point? You want to invite them into a community that they can actually experience maybe transformation in their life as people love them, maybe sometimes in a hard way. You just want to be friends forever. So my prayer is that we begin to look at our authority differently, our context is differently our resources differently, that we might be the pastors. And you begin to love God and love your brother and love your neighbor holistically as one. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for forgiveness. You are holy and righteous. And Father, your law reveals that I am not. I do not love you the way I should. I do not love my brothers, the body that you died for, the bride, the church. I do not love my neighbors, Lord. Heck, I don't even know all their names. Forgive me, God, for failing to fulfill my call and pointing fingers as to why other people are not fulfilling theirs. I pray, God, that you will cleanse me from my sin that you will empower me to see things differently and show me how to love my neighbor, how to serve with my brothers, and most importantly, how to love you from which all of that comes from. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. Thank you for sending Jesus to cleanse. And as we take communion today, I pray we're reminded that we are forgiven and we are made holy and righteous and empowered to declare forgiveness in your Son. And may we be committed to doing that till the day we die and we get to be with you. In his name we pray, amen.